As we prepare to open God's Word together, let's ask Him to bless it to us. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, make us to know your ways and teach us your paths. Lead us in your truth and teach us, for you are the God of our salvation. Lord, you are good and upright, therefore you instruct sinners in the way. You lead the humble in what is right and teach the humble his way. So we pray that you would instruct and lead and teach us by your spirit through your word so that we may see Jesus and hear us, we pray in his name. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's word to the gospel of Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. If you're visiting with us, we're glad to have you here this morning. We've been considering a series in our morning service through the book of Mark, and we've come to Mark chapter 10, verse 28. Mark 10, 28 through 34 will be our passage for this morning. You can find that on many of our pew Bibles on page 1076. Uh, Mark is the second book of the New Testament between Matthew and Luke. So Mark chapter 10 in our text, as I said, will be 28 through 34, but to remind ourselves of the context of this passage, I'm going to begin our reading at verse 17. So Mark chapter 10, beginning our reading at verse 17, and let's pay careful attention for this is God's own word. And as he, that is Jesus, was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. In our text... Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what would happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him 
and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Well, we've been considering this section of Mark's gospel, and we've said repeatedly that it's a section of the gospel that teaches us what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah and what it's required of his disciples if they want to follow him. And last time we looked together at the story of the rich young ruler and saw how that really was a story of the application of the things that Jesus had said about discipleship um, and what is required of disciples. And sadly, as we looked at that story, we saw how it was kind of a, a cautionary tale, a negative example of how we should not come to Christ. Uh, remember that the man had come to Jesus wanting to know what he must do to inherit eternal life, and Jesus had told him uh, that he would have to surrender everything to follow Jesus, to let go of those things that he was holding on to. This was an application of what Jesus had been teaching about what is required to enter the kingdom of God, what is required to find eternal life. Um, What is required is to come and to follow Jesus, to be willing to do what Jesus has called us to do. It was a reminder that you can't do anything to earn the blessings of the kingdom. The blessings of the kingdom have to be given, and it's only by obeying Christ's command to come and to leave all, to surrender yourself to him like a child, uh, to come and trust in him to receive these things that you can enter into Life And the sad thing we saw was the young man was not willing to do that. And we thought about the application that Jesus made in teaching them about the difficulty of entering the kingdom of God, that it's impossible without him. And as Peter has been hearing these things and absorbing these teachings, he comes to a realization in verse 28, a realization that he gives voice to the Lord. See, we have left everything and followed you. Um, Jesus' teaching is being applied by Peter. He's recognizing what Jesus has said, and he's responding to it here. And what we see in this passage is if the story of the rich young ruler is the tragic story of what happens when you don't follow Jesus, when he says, come here and follow, and you don't, then the story that follows here is the wonderful application of the truth of what happens if you do listen to his call. Uh, what we can expect as the people of God if we respond to the call of Christ to come and to follow. And that's really what this passage is about, what it means to follow Jesus, uh, what it means to obey the call to come and follow that's been issued, and what God's people can expect if they obey his call. And then the passage ends with this wonderful glimpse of the Lord we are called to follow. Um, We are given this wonderful picture of what he knows about what he is going to do and how he reveals to us what kind of king and leader and savior he is. And so as we think about this passage together, we can consider that followers of Christ learn about our expected losses. Uh, Jesus talks about the expected losses that we will encounter in this life. He also tells us about our expected gains, what we can expect to gain by following Christ. And finally, we're given this wonderful picture of our excellent king as he goes to Jerusalem, determined to do what's necessary to save his people. That's how we want to think about this passage this morning, our expected, gain, our expected losses, our expected gains, and our excellent king. Uh, we are 
coming to this realization of Peter as he's been listening to what Jesus has said, as this man has come seeking eternal life and asked what he has to do and Jesus has told him, we can almost you know, hear the wheels grinding in Peter's head as he comes to this realization and says, now wait a minute, we have left everything to follow you. Right? Jesus passed all of them and said, come follow me. And they left what they were doing and they followed him. Um, Peter is is hearing this, and he's thinking about this, and we can almost hear his unspoken question that he asks Jesus after he says, we have left all to follow you. We can almost hear the question that follows, right? Have we done what's necessary to inherit eternal life? You said, come and follow. And we came and followed, and we left everything to follow you. They might say, well, Jesus was asking the rich man to leave all of his great possessions. He was just leaving you to, asking you to leave your smelly fishing nets. But all is all, isn't it? Jesus said, come and follow, and they followed. And you can hear how Peter's working through this, right? Does that mean that we've done what's necessary to inherit eternal life? Now, Peter, when he speaks up, does not always have the greatest track record. Right? He doesn't always have the greatest track record for speaking up. And we can, almost, we can almost wince when Peter says things and say, oh, I wish you'd just kind of keep your mouth closed because it seems like every time you say something, you just put your foot in it. And we can almost sort of wince and wait for the response that Jesus is going to make to him and show him how wrong he is and, and what he's done wrong this time. And rebu- but notice there's no word of rebuke for Peter here. There's no, there's no mistake like he made when he tried to talk Jesus out of going to Jerusalem and suffering and dying for his people. And Jesus had to say to him, get behind me, Satan. There's no word of rebuke here, is there? Um, Jesus in no way says to Peter, you're misunderstanding. The only thing that Jesus really does here is to clarify for Peter what it means to follow him and what they ought to expect because they have left all to follow Jesus. Um, Jesus reminds Peter of something very important about why people must follow him. That's the first clarification, I think, that he really makes following what Peter says here. When Jesus says in verse 29, "Truly, truly Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left all the things that they have left for my sake and for the gospel's. For my sake and for the gospel's sake. Right, it's a very, clarific- very important clarification about why we follow Jesus. We don't follow Jesus in the first place for just what it profits us to follow Jesus. That certainly will flow, and Jesus will talk about how that works out in the lives of those who follow him. But he wants to be very clear. Those who truly follow him, follow, them, follow him for his sake. They follow him for the gospel's sake. They follow him not because of what it will get them. They follow him because of him, because of who he is, and because of what the gospel represents. True disciples follow him because they love him and because they desire to serve his gospel, the good news of the Lord extended to the whole world that the Lord is being willing to be found by all who come and seek him and follow him. 
that's an important clarification for these 12 disciples, right? Because one of them is a devil and who is not following Jesus for his sake and for the sake of his gospel. Jesus wants the disciples to understand that important truth. If you follow me because you love me, because you love the good news that I bring to the world and want other people to know me and come to me and love me as you have, then you are truly following me. It's the kind of love that is expressed by the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3. When he says in verses 7 through 9, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Right, Paul's saying, it would be enough for me to lose everything else if he's all that I gained. Um, are we following Christ for his sake and for his gospel? And Jesus says, if you follow me for my sake and for the gospel's sake, um, you will experience losses in this life. There are things that you will lose to follow me. And those losses will be difficult. Those losses will be difficult because Jesus speaks here all about things that are dear to us, uh, that we may have to leave for the sake of his gospel. He talks about the things that people may have to leave to follow him, leave house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands. All of those things are dear, right? To leave a home to follow Jesus, to leave family to follow Jesus, to leave fields to follow Jesus. That's not just, you know, in terms of property, that's your livelihood, sort of like the disciples leaving their nets. It's the way you make your living, the way you make your income. Those things are important, they are dear, they are precious, and it may involve leaving those things to follow Jesus. And Jesus not only talks here about the things we may have to leave to follow him, he talks here about the things we may lose if we follow him. I wasn't really sure this week whether to include persecutions with the things you gain or with the things you lose. Um, but persecution certainly involves the loss of things. Those who follow Jesus can lose their liberty. They can be imprisoned for his sake. They can lose their property, have that taken away because they follow the Lord. They can lose their lives because they follow Jesus. The, the original audience, the church that was in Rome when they received Mark's letter would have understood exactly what persecutions involved because there were some of their number who had lost their liberty and had lost their property and had lost their lives for the sake of following Jesus. We can expect that we may lose things to follow him. But Jesus reminds us wonderfully here that following him is not just to expect to lose things. Just like when he told the rich young ruler, you have to sell everything you have and give it all to the poor, he was not simply talking to him in terms of loss. Do you remember what the Lord said to him in verse 17? Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and I will give you treasure in heaven. 
It's not just a call to lose to follow Christ. It's not just a call to pay a cost to follow Christ. Jesus is being clear here. There will be things we will lose in this life if we follow him. The things he talks about and persecutions, that will come to those who follow him. But there will also be wonderful gains. He wants the disciples to understand what they have gained by following him. It's not just a matter of expected loss. There are expected gains for God's people in this life, here and now. That's what Jesus says, doesn't he? Verse 29, it's that wonderful promise. There is no one who has left these things who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. There are gains to following Christ and great gains in this life. Right Now in this time, Jesus is very clear about that, isn't he? Now in this time. If you have to leave a home, you'll receive a home a hundredfold. If you leave a mother or brothers or sisters or children, you'll receive them a hundredfold. If you leave lands, you'll receive them a hundredfold. There's only one thing on that list that you won't receive a hundredfold. It's fathers. So what is Jesus talking about here? Is this a proof text for a prosperity gospel? Right? Throw it out the window and God will restore it to you a hundredfold. Is that simply the principle that's being applied here? How do we realize these gains? Why does Jesus talk this way? Why do we gain those things now? Why is a father not included? What is Jesus talking about? He's reminding us that when we enter into his household, when we follow him, we join a new kind of world. We join a new kind of society in Christ. And we join the household of our father. I think that's why fathers are not included. That you don't receive fathers a hundredfold when you come and follow Jesus because you have God the Father now as your father. You've entered into his household And when you enter into his household, it means that everything he has is yours. Um, The family of the church becomes your family. That really means that all the homes that are owned by God, that are possessed by him and belong to his family, become the property of his people. That all the family in the family of God become the family of the people of God. And if we have to leave our earthly families to follow Jesus, we find another kind of family supplied to us in the household of God. If we leave a a means of support in this world to follow Christ, there's a means of support for us in the church. The Lord has not left us alone. The Lord has brought us into a new kind of society in this life where we experience blessing and gain. And Jesus is reminding us that when we follow him, when we become part of his father's family, that has blessings that flow to us now. They're not all in the future. There's a blessing about being part of the family of God now. I like how one commentator put it, the loss that allegiance to Jesus and the gospel may entail is on the condition that all that is lost in one society will be regained a hundredfold in the new society created by the gospel. God takes nothing away from a person 
without restoring it to him in a new and glorious form. It's important for these disciples to hear that with all they've left to follow Jesus, it's not all loss. There's a gain in following the Lord. There's a gain in being part of his people here and now, joining that society that is created by the Lord even in this world. And the good news that Jesus shares is the gains are not only in this life. There are gains in this life that we gain by becoming part of the house and family of God in this world, but the gains are not only for this life. There are gains also for the age to come. And that's one of the important things that Jesus reminds his followers of. That although there is loss in this life, although there are persecutions in this life, although there are gains in this life, there is something also that we are looking forward to in the life to come. And in the life to come, in the age to come, eternal life. It's a reminder that the only things we lose in following Jesus are lost in this life. But the things we gain are for this life and for the age to come. Um, And Jesus is putting that before his his disciples, that no one who who gives their lives for me and for my gospel will be a loser in the end. It will cost something to follow the Lord. But as we've said before, it also pays to follow the Lord. There are gains that we experience in this life. There are gains that we experience in the life to come. And that's why Jesus ends this particular section with that important gospel principle in verse 31. There are many who are first who will be last. And the last first. Um, Losing things for the sake of following Christ makes no sense to the world. They don't see why we would do that. Um, People can understand our religion when they think we just benefit by it. You know, oftentimes you'll meet people, well, you're a Christian, I'm not a Christian, that's fine, it works for you. So it's beneficial for you, that's why you do it. It's not beneficial for me, that's why I don't do it. People can understand that, even if they don't agree with you, right? They can understand that it's beneficial for you. You, you are re- receiving some benefit. But when you have to lose things, right? When you start talking about, I can't do that with you on a Sunday morning, I've got to be in church. That's when people start to say, I, I don't understand why you're giving up other things to do that. Sometimes the cost of it makes no sense. They can understand the gain. They don't understand why you lose anything to do this. And Jesus is saying to us, there are many that seem first in the world who end up being last. Right? The rich young ruler went away thinking, it's just not worth the cost. If I could gain eternal life, I'm happy to have it, but not at that cost, not at that price tag. I'm not willing to pay that. And he might have gone away in the world being first and not really having to worry about things. Uh, Being able to buy everything he needed and having a relatively easy life in that sense. But he ended with nothing. If this is all his story and it never changed at any point in his life, he ended with nothing. 
He might have been first in the world. He was last. And Jesus is reminding us, there are many people that do serve me that the world would count as last who end up first because they were willing to give all for my sake and for my gospel. And then the Lord applies that principle by talking about what he's going to Jerusalem to do. He talks about loss and gain, and then he teaches something very important about where he is about to go, and reminds us that he is about to go to make himself last, that he might make his people first. And that's in these last few verses we really see our excellent king who we are being called to follow. This, this verse, maybe this section really properly belongs to the next section, really is the start of something else, but I think we can see it as an important pivotal moment in what Jesus has just said, because he's talked a lot about sacrifice. And one of the many wonderful things about our God is he is not a God that calls us to make sacrifices that he is unwilling to make. Um, we, we as citizens, right, we can have bipartisan um, disagreement with politicians who make one rule for other people and follow another rule themselves, right? There were very notable incidents of that during COVID when people would shut down restaurants and then be seen with their friends at a restaurant or shut down hairdressers and then be seen with their friends at hairdressers or say everyone should buy a union-made electric car and then go out and buy an electric car that's not union-made. No matter what letters behind politicians' names or what letters on your voter registration, when you see that, you despise it. Why? Because they're saying it's a rule for you, not for me. Um, no matter what our political affiliation, right, we don't like that. When they don't live up to the standard, this, that's not the kind of God we serve. He's not a God who says, I expect you to make sacrifices, but who doesn't himself make sacrifices. And Jesus is very clear in these verses, verses 32 through 34, just exactly what kind of sacrifice he's going to make for the sake of his people. What he is about to do. Because he's going to sacrifice something worse than anything he's called his disciples to suffer. And he speaks about those sacrifices in verses 33 and 34. But before we hear what Jesus says there, before Mark tells us about that, he tells us about how they go to Jerusalem. It's the setting for what Jesus says. And for the first time in verse 32, Mark tells us where they are going. They've been on the way. Now Mark tells us where they are on the way to go. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. They're on their way, and they're on their way to Jerusalem. Now, this is likely when the Passover is approaching, so many people are going up to Jerusalem. So in that sense, it would not be that unique that they are on their way up to Jerusalem. But for Jesus, this trip to Jerusalem has nothing but ominous overtones in Mark's gospel. There's a dark cloud that hangs over Jesus' approach to Jerusalem. The last two times Jerusalem has been mentioned in Mark's gospel, it's been about the scribes that have come from Jerusalem putting Jesus to the test. Um, 
Jerusalem has been the place of opposition to the Lord in this gospel. And Jesus had already told his disciples what was going to happen to him in Mark chapter 8, verse 31. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Where are all those religious leaders? Jesus is talking about the Sanhedrin. They're all located in Jerusalem. Um, This has nothing but ominous overtones. But despite the the ominous nature of where the Lord is going, notice how Jesus is presented to us by Mark here. Everyone else is either amazed. I think that's the disciples. They're amazed. Those who follow are afraid. And why? What's causing this? Usually when Mark has said something like this, he said they were amazed at his words or they were afraid of what he had said but didn't want to ask him because they were afraid of what he'd said. There's no, there's no explanation of what is making them amazed or afraid. There's nothing to explain it other than how Jesus is going before them. How Jesus is going before them on the road. Um, they're amazed how he goes. They're afraid. I think the crowd is sensing this this fearful atmosphere, and it's making them afraid. But where is Jesus? He's out in front of them, purposefully heading towards Jerusalem. Despite of what, in spite of what he knows awaits him there, here we have the Lord going out in front of them all, purposely going forward to do what he's come to do, determined to do the will of his Father. And it speaks to us of the excellence of our king. That knowing what awaits him there, he is determined to go. We have a king who's possessed of an iron will. It shows us that he is the servant of the Lord that Isaiah spoke about. When Isaiah said that the servant of the Lord would come and say, I have set my face like a flint and I know I shall not be put to shame. Here we have our Lord striding purposefully towards what awaits him in Jerusalem, knowing full well what he's come to do. It's a testimony to us, as one person said, that the Lord will resist and persist whatever stands between him and his goal. He has come to serve by his life and to save by his death, and nothing will turn him from his purpose. He is going there for his people. It's a testimony to that resolve that he will express in a few verses in Mark 10, 45. The Son of Man came not to be served, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the Lord who presses forward despite knowing exactly where he's going. And he says what awaits him there when he calls the disciples to himself in verses 33 and 34. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will arise. This is the third time that Jesus has prophesied 
his death in Jerusalem. And he's added details here that he's not spoken of before. That while it's the religious leaders who will condemn him in Jerusalem, he will be delivered over to the Gentiles who will be the ones who will execute him. They are the ones who will put him to death after he's condemned by the religious leaders. And not only will the Gentiles put him to death, that before he's put to death, he will be mocked and spit upon and flogged. The flogging he speaks of here is the kind of scourging or savage whipping that the Romans always gave condemned prisoners. And it was a whipping so severe that sometimes people didn't survive it to be executed. He's very clear about what is going to happen to him. He wants the disciples to understand. It says something important about who Jesus is as the Son of Man and what he's going to do. It's a horror that God's people would do this to their Messiah. To think that the Messiah of God's people would come and that they would hand him over to Gentiles. That they would condemn him themselves and then hand him over to the Gentiles to be abused and to be mistreated and to be executed. It speaks of the horror of what Jesus is going to do. It also tells us that Jesus is exactly the servant of the Lord that was prophesied about in the Old Testament. What did Isaiah say would happen to the servant of the Lord? He said he would be despised and that he would be mocked and that he would be spit upon. In Isaiah 50 verse 6, the servant of the Lord says, I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Isaiah 53.3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Isaiah said he would be flogged. Servant of the Lord says in Isaiah 56, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. Isaiah 53.5, he said, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. On him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. If we know that from an older version of the Bible, it's his stripes that heal us. This is the servant of the Lord that the Old Testament presents to us. This is the servant of the Lord who goes to do the will of his Father to save his people, knowing what that will mean for him. And determined to go because it's necessary to fulfill his Father's will and it's necessary to save his people. That's the kind of Lord we serve, who's resolved to do this, not because he needs to do it, but because we need him to do it for us. He's resolved to do it because it's the only way by which we can be saved. But just as he doesn't ask all loss from his people who follow him, he tells his disciples it's not all loss in Jerusalem that I go to do. Because it doesn't end with his death, does it? When he says what's going to happen in Jerusalem, that's not where it ends. They will do all of these things to him. They will condemn him. And they will deliver him. And the Gentiles will mock him. And they will spit on him. And they will kill him. But what will he do? After three days, he will rise. This is not simply the story of loss. 
It's not simply the story of sacrifice. It's the story of vindication. That the Lord will be vindicated through his resurrection. That despite all they do to him, he will overcome. And that also was promised of the servant of the Lord. We know that from Isaiah 53. We know that from Isaiah 50, verses 7 through 9. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? The Lord goes not just to die, but to overcome by his death. Not just to suffer, but to triumph. To be raised up, not just for himself, but for his people. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. The Lord who says, leave all to follow me, is the Lord who now leads out to leave all for our sakes who gave all to come into this world and now is going to give all that he has in this world to save his people from their sins, who is going to lay down his life for the sake of those who love him, for the sake of those who serve him. He will become the embodiment of the good news that we proclaim by his suffering and his death and by his resurrection. He calls us to follow him as our excellent king who leads us in this way. Who walks out with purpose to die and rise again to save his people. And as one person put it, surely if Jesus willingly died for us, it is a small thing to require us to live for him. And when we feel the cost of following the Lord in our lives... May we think on the things that we gain. And may we think about the Lord who gave all for our sakes. Who does not call his people to suffer in a way that he did not suffer. May we put our faith and trust in him. And for the sake of the love we have for the Lord that did this for us. And for sake of the good news of the gospel that was proclaimed in his name. That all can come and find him and find life. May we rejoice in what the Lord has done for sinners. And may we seek to serve him with our lives. Because he is our excellent king. The son of God who loved us and who gave himself for us. Amen. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for our Lord. We thank you for the cost he was willing to pay to save sinners. We thank you for his purpose in going to Jerusalem to accomplish the redemption of your people. Lord, we we are called to sacrifice in following him and maybe are even tempted to think that the sacrifice we're called to is too great. May we look to our Lord, to our Lord who strode purposely before the crowd to go to Jerusalem and left them all amazed and afraid. We thank you that he is possessed of an iron will, that he was determined to go and to give himself as a ransom for many. 
We thank you for the work that he's accomplished. We pray that we would live in gratitude for what he's done and by repentance and faith follow him. Hear us and help us in these things, we pray, for we ask in his precious name. Amen.